Yeah, at Gakar, we didn't have the steps, so I'm going to get used to that. It's funny, this is, we've been in this building now, I think this is the fourth week, and I think this is my second time preaching, so it's the way it worked out. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm rejoicing after a week away to be here with uh, the brethren here at the church. I just want to remind you, it's one of the things that uh, I want to continue to remind us of is that we at Grace Bible Church, we are committed, we're always committed to the exaltation of God. That's why we sing songs that are rich in theology. Uh, We're committed to the exposition of Scripture. That's why I stand up here and and preach uh, a boring sermon for about an hour Uh, I'm just kidding. Hopefully it's not boring. It's funny, by the way, I don't think the preaching of the Word of God should ever be boring. Uh, I don't think so. I think that it's the most amazing um, subject. Theology and understanding of who God is is the most amazing subject that we can preach and talk about. I think, you know, a math lecture, preaching of of the Word of God. But we're also committed to the equipping of the saints and evangelizing the lost. We desire for those ministry pillars to uphold everything that we do here at Grace Bible Church. These pillars even uphold our Lord's Day gathering. I mean, it's it's what we do. We exalt God. We gather to exalt God through fellowship, through music, through prayer, through Bible reading, through teaching, through preaching. And we exposit the word understanding that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we equip the, the saints for the work of the service. We do this through sound biblical teaching from the pulpit and in our equipping classes, the men's and women's Bible studies and also like the purity study that we're doing now. We do so so that, that you will go out and do the work of the service and, and that you will go out and evangelize the lost by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with a life that matches that gospel. We endeavor, we endeavor to preach the Word of God, which proclaims the good news that Jesus died for our sins and has been resurrected from the grave, having triumphed over sin and death. And we exist then, as a church, as a church body, we exist to bring God glory and to proclaim Him to a lost and dying world. We come together, we gather on a Sunday morning, we gather to exalt Him and to be equipped to preach the gospel to the lost. You see, before we were Christians, before we were Christians, brethren, before we were Christians, according to Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in disobedience, and we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We formerly indulged, indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of the world still is. But God did not leave us in that position. He didn't abandon us to our, in our spiritual death because God is rich in mercy. And because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
That's the glory of the resurrection, that he didn't just raise from the, rise from the grave, but he ascended to the Father. And in him, we have been raised up and seated in the heavenly places with him, in him. And the, we, God has done this. He has saved us by his matchless grace. We could even say it this way. Salvation is from the Lord. That is exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 3.8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you know who else said those very words? Said those very words. He makes that very same statement from the, the belly of a great fish. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I avowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Yes, I said Jonah. Jonah said that. The prophet who refused to obey the Lord. Yes, the disobedient, silly prophet from the northern kingdom understood and proclaimed salvation is from the Lord. Ultimately, that's the main point of this passage. Of this, sorry, that's the main point of this little Old Testament book called Jonah. God has a redemptive plan that will be carried out according to his sovereign will and nothing can thwart and nothing can change his plan. Certainly not a disobedient prophet and not even an obstinate nation, the nation of Israel. You see, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing surprises him. He ordained all that would come to pass from before the foundation of the world. And as we return to this study in Jonah, I trust that you will see that God, you will see God's sovereign plan at work in this defiant prophet named Jonah. I pray that God's glory, as we do so, I pray that God's glory will be will shine even brighter as we see his plan unfold. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would be with us this morning as we continue our worship. Father, I pray that you would be with the preacher as he preaches your word, that he would do so with clarity of mind and heart, with purity, Father, that he would be able to communicate your truths, Father, that he would depend upon the Spirit, and that the listener would have the Holy Spirit dwelling richly within them, such that they will be able to hear and understand, and your, work, your word will do what it is intended to do. In Christ's name, amen. I've always been fascinated by the man John Newton. Even before knowing his name, I remember singing the hymn that he wrote, Amazing Grace, with my father in front of the church when I was four, maybe even earlier than that. And even then, I loved that hymn. I just lived to sing that hymn. And I don't know exactly why. I wasn't a believer at the time. I was very young. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Did you know that John Newton wrote those famous words from experience? By his own admission, he was a wretch. Perhaps that's why I'm so drawn to him. Very early in his life, his mother had a great influence on him, but she died before he was seven. Before she died, though, she gave him a solid foundation in the Christian faith and even prayed that he would become a preacher. After her death, he spent much of his teen years and well into his 20s wallowing in his sin in the belly of ships. He didn't become a believer until later in life, and he wasn't ordained as a pastor until 39. 
In those earlier, early years, as he, as he wallowed in his sin, there was no hint of the man of God he would become. There was no reason at all to believe that he would even become a good citizen, much less a God-fearing man, and certainly not a pastor. From the time his mother died, his general trajectory was downward, down and down and down. At one point, he became so obnoxious in his sin that the captain and the chief mate of his ship decided that he should stay in Africa. He lived there. He lived the life of the prodigal son. At first, he set out to make his fortune, perhaps buying and se- perhaps even buying and selling slaves. But God continually shattered any dreams of making riches. Eventually, he sunk so low that he became utterly destitute. John fell into the hands of a slave trader, and and that slave trader's evil wife. They treated him even more harshly than they treated their slaves. The slaves would even have to give him food to eat to keep him from starving. During that time, all hope seemed to be lost for John Newton. But his father heard of his situation and asked a ship captain to come search for him. The captain providentially found that, that and even found him and even had to lure him onto his ship. Even with his rescue from Africa, Newton continued that downward trajectory. Later, he described himself as this. He said, I've never met so daring a blasphemer. Not content with common oaths, oaths, I daily invented new ones, so that even the captain, who was not a Christian, rebuked me, end quote. During his voyage back to Europe, they encountered storm after storm. The captain often told him that they had a Jonah on board, and he was that man. John Newton was a strange combination of the prodigal son and the prophet Jonah. One day, while on that journey home, Newton encountered the sovereignty of God. He got it fully engaged his heart and his mind with one thought. What if these things should be true? What if these things should be true? No doubt he was, among other things, thinking of the things that his mother had taught him. Later that day, they ran into another dreadful storm. The waves broke over the ships and sailors were even being washed away. Newton manned the pumps for many hours, tied to the deck by a lifeline. It was during this ordeal that there was that one thought continually in his mind. What if these things should be true? He was inundated by the storm, yet the storm raging inside him was even greater. This incredible incident began his upward journey. He was on that downward trajectory, that downward journey, that journey away from Christ. This incredible incident began his upward journey toward fully yielding his wretched life to Christ. Upon making landfall in Ireland, he said, he said of this time, he said, I, I stood in the need of an almighty Savior. Such a one is, and such a one I found described in the New Testament. The Lord had wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. I heartily renounced my former profaneness, and and in all appearances, I was a new man. The Holy Spirit would carry out that difficult process of sanctification for the rest of his life. Newton goes on to describe his state after he stepped off that ship. He says, I was greatly deficient in many respects. 
I was little aware of the innate evils of my heart. I had no apprehension of the spirituality and the extent of the law or of the hidden life of of a Christian as it consists in communion with God by Jesus Christ, a continual dependence on Him for hourly supplies of wisdom, strength, and comfort. I acknowledged the the Lord's mercy in pardoning my past, but depended chiefly upon my resolution to do better for the time to come. For I had no Christian friend or minister to advise me, and I did not hear evangelical preaching or conversation for six years, end quotes. As we study, return to our study in Jonah, as we study, we need to look at the great depths to which John Newton sank. And that downward spiral is not unlike Jonah. Today we will see the depths to which Jonah sank and the faithfulness of God, just like John Newton, the faithfulness of God to, who, who saved John Newton, who physically and spiritually saved Jonah. And as a church, we've been studying this little Old Testament book and considering its profound connections to the rest of Scripture. We've looked at the account of Jonah as a play acted, acted out before our eyes. We started with the prologue of, the, of this play in Matthew 12. In that passage, we saw a foreshadow of the purpose of Jonah. In Matthew 12, the scribes and the Pharisees had challenged Jesus' ministry and blasphemed the work of the Holy Spirit. They were so intent on the works of the law that they missed God's heart in His law. And in Matthew 12, 7, Jesus made a curious statement to these Jewish leaders. He says this, But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now later in that chapter, the scribes and Pharisees demanded a further sign that he was from the Father. And he responded that it would be the sign of Jonah, that the sign of Jonah would be the only sign that they received. And some of the Now, I've argued, that is, I've argued that Jesus' response shows that Jonah is not just a big fish story, but a true account, even with all its eccentricities. Now, I've also argued that the Jonah narrative plays a huge role in understanding God's work of redemption. Now, in the last sermon, I even gave you a big hint. I would argue that our prologue foreshadows the ending of Jonah and the beginning of the church. Now, after the prologue, we saw the opening act, a great city, and we looked at this prophet Jonah. We saw that Jonah was a silly prophet from uh, from the northern kingdom of Israel, and as such, he embodied the attitudes and the actions of the nation. He was disobedient and entitled just like the entire nation. He longed for God to bless Israel as a nation, but didn't desire to be a blessing to the Gentile nations as Uh, as it was told to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, I've argued that Jonah knew that the the clock, that is, was ticking on Israel. He grasped that Israel would be judged by God along with the other nations. He understood that. And he hated the idea that God would judge Israel for their sin, but he loved the idea of the nations being judged. Ironically, God sent Jonah to this great city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, who, by the way, was the enemy of Israel. Jonah loathed this assignment. He hated it so much that he went in the opposite direction. He was called to go east, he went west, he was called to arise, instead he went down and down and down, just like John Newton in our introduction. 
He even went, and he even went down into the sea. And today we're going to see the depths to which Jonah would go to flee God's presence. Yet, even as he went down into the great deep, Jonah could not flee from God. He could not flee from God's presence. So why did Jonah go so far to, down to flee God's presence? Truly, it's because he embodied the attitude of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees were harsh in their actions, they were judgmental and legalistic, and they were self-righteously scornful of others. And that's the attitude that Jonah had about the Ninevites. He certainly didn't want God to show compassion on those idol-worshiping pagans in Nineveh. He didn't want that. Yet he knew from Israel's history that God is a compassionate God. We saw that in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. I won't read it, but God is a compassionate God. God is a compassionate God. He is is gracious, gracious, He's slow to anger, and He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then we saw Act 1, a great storm. That's what we saw last time. So in 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 Act 1, Jonah flees from God. Yet God hurls a great storm on the sea such that the boat was about to be destroyed. And the sailors on that boat did everything they could to keep that ship from being destroyed. But Jonah went to the hold of the ship and had fallen asleep. He literally didn't care. He was intent on going away from God. Then the captain woke Jonah and told him, get up, get up and call on your God. What are you doing here? Why are you being so indifferent? He was amazed at Jonah's indifference to their plight, and he renewed God's call to arise. It's amazing that this this Gentile pagan captain was speaking the same words and telling him to arise. Get up. And then the sailors cast lots, and God providentially caused a lot to fall on Jonah. And Jonah Jonah then was shown to be clearly the reason for this great storm. He, could be, he was a Hebrew prophet, and he was fleeing from the Lord, and they knew that. They knew that because he had told them. And then Jonah told them to hurl him into the stormy sea, but they hesitated. He, he wanted to be hurled into the stormy sea. That's the depths to which he would go and going down and fleeing the presence of the Lord. But they hesitated because they feared the Lord. But ultimately, they cast Jonah into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The sea stopped its raging. Now, as we left off in Act 1, Jonah's downward journey continues. Now he's going not only down into the hold of the ship, or down into the water, now he's going down to the depths of the sea. Down to the depths of the sea. Now, as this amazing drama, as what we'll call it, unfolds, we've seen the prologue. We've seen the opening act, and we have also seen Act 1, the great storm. Today we're going to see Act 2, a great fish, a great fish. And hopefully we'll begin to look at Act 3, a great compassion or a great repentance. So let me read Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Starting in verse, actually let's start chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord. And he answered me. 
I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look to your, toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were, was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. <clears throat> then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, let's look at Act 2, a great, a great fish, and we'll see that, that Yahweh prepares this great fish. Look back at your text in verse 17. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three nights, three days and three nights. Now, I should make a few comments. We saw this verse last time, but I should make a few comments on, on, this, uh, on this verse. The verb translated appointed is very interesting. It's translated appointed by the NASB and the ESB. This, this, this verb has the idea of to arrange for. In other words, God sovereignly arranged for this great fish to swallow Jonah at the most opportune moment. Clearly, Yahweh proves that he made the land and the sea, or the sea and the dry land, and he rules over both. He, in, in Jonah 1.9, Jonah had said, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And Psalm 24.1, of course, Jonah would have known this, that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, and those in uh, the world and those who dwell in it. And that includes this great fish. Now, from before the time this fish was hatched or born or whatever it was, God had appointed it to carry Jonah back to safety. The Hebrew does not, doesn't tell us clearly what this, the type of fish is that God used. It could have been a whale, it could have been, it could have been anything, but it, it, it was ultimately just a large fish that swims. We don't know exactly what that was, but that's all we know. It was a large fish, but we also know clearly that God arranged for this fish to pick up Jonah at just the right time, at just the right time. Now, I think we should mention that the, the miracles, I mean, this obviously is a miracle, right? The miracles depicted in Jonah tend to bring out the skeptics. They say that this story can't be fully authentic, <clears throat> Uh, the skeptics and critics contend that this story cannot give historical, uh, cannot have historical validity. Instead, they they sometimes spiritualize the book as an allegory or a, even as a parable. Some even try to to hold Jonah as historical narrative while saying that many of the fantastic elements are are a dramatic embellishment just to make a desired point. Now. I agree that there are spiritual lessons to be found in this book. 
I agree that there are some fantastic elements, if you will. But I stand with the Lord Jesus. <coughs> he absolutely understood this book to be actual history in every part. Yes, yes, and yes, God did arrange for a great fish to carry Jonah back to safety. He did do this. God arranged for that fish, let me just say it this way, just as easily as you and I would arrange for an Uber ride to the airport. I hope you notice that. I hope you realize that, that is. Now, you may notice that Jonah remained in the fish for three days and three nights. Clearly, there is a parallel to the Lord's time in the grave. Our Lord even draws this conclusion in Matthew 12, 40, when he, where he says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, later in the series, we'll explore the parallels between Jonah's time in the fish and Jesus' time in the grave. But for now, for now, let's look at Jonah's prayer. Jonah's prayer while he's in the belly of the fish. Jonah prays to Yahweh, his God. So it is here in the belly of the fish that Jonah finally shows a sign of repentance. In that horrid, squalid place covered with stomach acid, Jonah prays to God. Look at Jonah 2.1. Then Jonah prayed to, his, to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Now Jonah's prayer, which runs through from, from verse 2 all the way to verse 9, resembles the prayers of thanksgiving from the book of, thanksgiving <clears throat> from the book of Psalms. Now he makes several allusions to the Psalms in this prayer, uh, prayer of thanksgiving and trust. So Jonah's praying, he's modeling this prayer, this prayer is modeled after many of the psalms of thanksgiving that we find in the psalms, but he's also alluding back to them as he prays. Jonah 2, then, is a beautiful example of prayer to God using biblical language. Have you ever prayed with someone and they pray the Scripture? I mean, they're so in tune with the Scripture that as they pray, Scripture comes out of them. That's what happens here with Jonah 2 in this prayer. Surely the, Apostle, surely the Apostle Paul knew Jonah's prayer when he encouraged the, the church at Ephesus to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So Jonah, Jonah is, I promise you, giving thanks to God for this fish, even in those situations. Friends, Jonah's prayer is powerful, powerful. In the words of, of one commentator, he says that this prophet, a few words finally, that this prophet, a few words finally prayed, marks a turning point in the book. Although exhorted to pray earlier by the the pagan captain, there is no indication that Jonah did so. I would say that he didn't. <clears throat> that Jonah prayed not only to the Lord as the sailors did, but to the Lord his God is significant. End quote. Now, as we look at chapter 2, I would argue that this is the heart of the book. Jonah's prayer helps us understand his change of heart, leading to his obedience in, to pre, in preaching to the Ninevites. It also shows that Jonah, Jonah's heart of thankfulness to God for showing compassion upon him. Now, that's important for us to realize that, he's, that he is thankful for 
God showing compassion upon him. But as we see in chapter 4, these signs of repentance must be qualified by what we see there. And Jonah's attitude is still that he didn't want to see compassion to be shown toward the Ninevites. But we'll get there in in due time. But in chapter 2, we will see the nature of Jonah's experience in the deep, in the deep, and in the belly of the fish. Now, this form of prayer, this prayer of thanksgiving, follows the model of thanksgiving prayers found in the Psalms. So, prayers of thanksgiving generally have four parts. I think it's important we understand this. First, a summary introduction. Second, a personal crisis. Third, a, a recount of God's rescue. So I'm, in, I'm, I'm summarizing things in the, in the first part. I'm telling you what's going on, what happened in the second part. In the third part, I'm telling you about God, what God did. And in the fourth part, is it, it is a final vow of praise. Final vow of praise. So let's look at Jonah's summary introduction in verse 2. So Jonah says, and I called, and he said, and I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. This verse, this verse echoes, has echoes of Psalm 18.3, where the psalmist records the, the words of David when God delivered him from the hand of Saul. In, in Psalm 18.3, it says, I, called, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now, in the case of Jonah, Jonah is describing his call of a cry of distress while he was in the deep. So, let's make sure we understand. Jonah is praying... He's, he's writing about his prayers while he was in the belly of the fish, but he's praying about the time he spent in the deep. Look at your text. <clears throat> notice that God heard his cry and answered him. Also, again, notice where Jonah was at when he cried out. He describes that place as the belly of Sheol. Now, the term Sheol refers to the realm of the dead, the grave, or even death itself. Now, some believe that Jonah was swallowed up by death. In other words, he died. Now, I don't honestly think that's the case. I would argue, then, that Jonah is referring to his time in the depth of the sea. Now, when Jonah was at the depth of the sea, he was near death for certain. Jonah realized, I think Jonah clearly realized, that he was at the very brink of death. Now, in the Hebrew mind, Sheol was associated with the underworld, which was associated with the ocean floor. Now, one one commentator states, inasmuch as Sheol was believed to be under the floor of the ocean, Jonah was spatially near that place, end quote. Now, we should recognize then also that Hebrews viewed the act of dying as a process. So it was at the floor of the ocean that Jonah reckoned that he was more associated with the realm of dead, of the dead, that would be Sheol, than with the realm of the living. In other words, in Jonah's mind, the death nail had rung out. He was as good as gone. He had kicked the bucket. He had been eaten literally by death. He had the words of Proverbs one twelve in his mind. It says, let us swallow them, swallow them alive like Sheol even whole as those who go down to the pits. And so Jonah was here at the bottom of the ocean, uh, at, at death's door, and it was at that point that Jonah called out to the Lord. 
As the commentator George Landis has stated, it is clearly before Jonah is swallowed by the ship that he was threatened by the sea and in danger of permanent residence in the netherworld. Again, Sheol. Now, as this psalm will explain to us, Jonah was struggling for his life at the bottom of the sea. He had, literally it says, he had seaweed wrapped around his head. He was sinking to his grave. He was out of favor with the Lord. As, Jonah's, as Jonah was ebbing towards certain death, he cried out. And the Lord heard his voice from the belly of Sheol. Friends, no matter how deep you sink into the depths of your sin and depravity, the Lord can hear your voice crying in humble submission and utter brokenness. As long as you have oxygen in your body, God can save you if you cry out to Him. For those who are in Christ, perhaps you've been carried away by your sin. Like Jonah, you were running from God's presence. For those who are not in Christ, you, you are swallowed up by spiritual death. Physical death will most certainly follow. You will die, for it is appointed uh, to man to die, and then comes the judgment. In both cases, whether you're a believer who is fleeing from God, or, or whether you're an unbeliever who is spiritually dead, cry out to God and He will certainly save you. Let's look at verses 3-6, through six, Jonah's personal crisis. Look at your text in verse 3. As Jonah begins to describe what happened to him, his personal crisis at the bottom of the sea. Verse 3, For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. Now with these words, Jonah then is, is referring back to the sailors who had tossed him or casted him or hurled him into the sea. Yet he clearly recognizes that it was the hand of God that did so. It was the hand of God that cast him into the sea into the depth of the waters. He was thrown into the, the, the stormy sea and the currents swallowed him. <coughs> Jonah literally had no chance of living outside of divine intervention. Notice the last phrase in, in verse 3. For you had cast me, I'm sorry, all of your breakers and billows passed over me. Now, this phrase is a direct quote of Psalm 42.7. In that psalm, the, the, the psalmist claims that God has brought upon him the tri oceans of trial in which he is drowning. And Jonah too, Jonah clearly understands that he has been pushed below the waves toward the bottom of the deep by his God. Notice the text says, your breakers and your billows have passed over me. Clearly this shows that Yahweh, Yahweh is the ultimate reason that Jonah finds himself in that position. To clarify, to clarify this, it was Jonah's sin that led him to be there. But it was God's hand of discipline that did the work. It was God's breakers and, and billows that overcame him. In the words of Martin Luther, Jonah does not say the waves and billows of the sea went over me, but thy waves and thy billows. Because he felt in his conscience that the sea with its waves and billows was the servant of God and of his wrath to punish sin. End quote. Look at Jonah 2.4. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. This is an allusion to Psalm 31.22, where it is written, As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. You see, it was Jonah who had run from God. He had, he had run away from God. It was Jonah who continually went down instead of rising up. 
yet it was in this place that Jonah, in that place, as he as at the bottom, uh, the depths of where he could go, it was in that place that Jonah recognized in horror that he risked spiritual separation from God. In Psalm 31, the psalmist said in his alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. And Jonah had that same realization. This is like the child who looks up in a crowded market only to find that their father or their mother is nowhere to be found. There's instant alarm. Where are they at? It was Jonah's alarm followed by great fear. In the case of the psalmist and with Jonah, we see this great alarm. Jonah recognized that God would physically save him. He says in Jonah 2.4, Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Clearly, Jonah knew that God, in that place, that God was capable of hearing and would ultimately restore him. He knew that because he had studied it in the Psalms all his life as a prophet. He knew the truths of the Word of God. He knew that he could save him. Clearly, Jonah knew that God was capable. Now look back at your text in verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Put simply, this is Jonah's description of his time in the deep before the, the fish swallowed him. He, is, he was physically separated from God and he was at the, point of ver- the very point of death. He was inundated by the waters of the deep. Seaweed growing at the bottom of the ocean was even wrapped around his head. Uh, look at verse 6. He, he goes on to further describe it in this way. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Uh, Jonah continues to describe his physical situation as death rapidly approached. The roots of the mountains, another way to say he was at the depths of the ocean. The earth was swallowing him whole. I mean, he was, he was being imprisoned forever by the earth. Beloved, you may feel that, like Jonah, at the bottom of the ocean. You are at the end of your rope. Perhaps you've been sick and you wonder when and if you will regain your health. Perhaps you're financially unstable and you wonder how you're going to pay your bills. Perhaps you've lost someone close to you and you wonder when the grief will end. Maybe it's experiencing family strife and you wonder when God will give relief. What about struggling with sin? It's the sin that just besets you. The sin that you can't get away from. And you wonder, you wonder why you have to deal with your own fleshly desires in this world. Well, cry out to God for help. Cry out for God to, for God to help you. He will hear your cry. Even at the depths of where you can go, He will hear your cry. He knows your circumstances. And God knew exactly what Jonah was enduring. And amazingly, He arranged for a fish to save him. Now, He may not use... He may not dial up a fish like we dial up an Uber ride. But nonetheless, He can and He will save. If you humbly call out. Let's look at Jonah's recount, recount of God's rescue and starting in verse 6. From the belly of the fish, God, or Jonah praises God for hearing his prayer and coming to the rescue. He, he, exclaims, he exclaims, but you have brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah recognized that it was God. 
And it was God alone who rescued him from the depths of the ocean. He, he recounts the rescue, giving God all the praise. Now, this is an allusion to Psalm 40, verse 2, written by David, where it says, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon the rock, making my footsteps firm. Back at verse 7, Jonah 2, 7. Now this is part of the reason why I would say that Jonah never actually died. Some people believe that he did. And I think that's the connection, the, the resurrection, you know, the, the three days and three nights. I think that's the, the idea. And, and I want to I hopefully at the end of this series, as we, as we approach the end, we're going to talk about the sign of Jonah. And we're going to talk about why, why Jesus says this. But I don't think it's because Jonah actually died while he was in the deep. Jonah, in verse 7, it says, While I was fainting away, he didn't say I, when I died. By the way, dead people don't die or don't pray. Generally speaking, I don't think so, at least the way we understand prayer. He says, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Again, I would say this clearly shows he didn't die. He was fainting away. He He was fading away. He was at death's door. And as Jonah ebbed so close to death, as he ebbed so close to dying, he remembered the Lord. And here's what's amazing. God heard his prayer. God heard his prayer. Look down at verse 8. The NASB renders this verse, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. The ESV renders it, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The Net Bible, NET, New English Translation, says those who worship worthless idols forfeit, forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. I think in this case, the ESV and the NET better translate the sense of that verse. The idea here is that when humans, when, when mankind, when men give themselves to worship vain idols, they forfeit the possibility of God showing them steadfast love. So therefore, I would argue that in this verse, Jonah acknowledges that Yahweh is the only true God. He is worthy of all worship and adoration. As a matter of fact, our hearts, we were created to worship Him. So, so we were created to have this relationship with Him, and because of our sin, we, can't, we no longer have that relationship with Him. But he still remains worthy of all worship and adoration. Therefore, no one should worship vain idols. That's the point. Because when they do so, when they worship vain idols, they give up any possibility of experiencing God's merciful love. Now let's apply this to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were forfeiting any hope of God's love because they worshiped vain idols. In effect, I would argue that God has convinced Jonah that he should go to the pagan Ninevites and that when they repent, God himself will give them compassion. Now this section, I would argue, may have the greatest application to to the church. Jonah didn't want to obey God because he didn't want those evil...
compassion. As humans, we tend to show partiality to those we like, do we not? You know, those like us. And we tend to look down on others. Some folks we would love to see, see come to Christ. Have you ever met the person that you go, yeah, that, that person would make a great Christian. That person would be, that person would be awesome. Just, just believe the gospel. And then somebody else comes to Christ and you're like, well, yeah. <laughs> I know that's a wrong attitude, but that's the point. We tend to look down. We tend to do these things. We tend to do this. At that time, the Jews hated the Gentiles. They didn't want the, the Gentiles to be included in the family of God. Yet today, I fear the reverse is true. The, in, our culture, in our culture, we love middle-class people, do we not? As I look around this, this, uh, the, the people here, we're all middle-class for the most part, right? We love one another because we're in the middle class. We don't think of it that way. But we don't know what to do with the poor, do we? Just think of how many truly poor people, truly poor people attend our churches. Very few, right? Very few. And our prejudices go on and on. But God shows no partiality. It's Romans 2.11. He is truly a compassionate God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And I would argue that Jonah begrudgingly comes to this same conclusion as he languishes in the belly of the fish. And this results in his final, Jonah's final vow of praise, verse 9. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. And Jonah finally comes to the end of himself and he worships Yahweh from the belly of the fish. He understands that any good sacrifice must be to God and God alone. Ultimately, in a very real sense, <coughs> excuse me, in a very real sense, Jonah has, has experienced this. Ultimately, we owe him our very lives. We owe him uh, the breath that we take. And Jonah, Jonah has come to realize and recognize fully that God gives us every breath that we breathe. As Jonah was in the belly of the ocean, Jonah had no air to breathe. In the belly of the fish, God gave Jonah the breath of life. And this truth leads Jonah to thanksgiving and should remind us that we owe our existence to the one true God. The truth, this truth should remind us of, of Genesis 2.7 where it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. By the way, you're made of dirt. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Literally, every one of you, whether you acknowledge it or not, every one of us in this room, every person who has ever lived on this earth, owes his life, her life, to this breath of life that God gives. The Lord God gave Adam his first breath and he has sustained every human being since that moment. And I think that's where Jonah graphically realizes this. Graphically realizes it. Look at verse 9 again. He says, that which I avowed I will pay. That line refers to Psalm 76.11 which says, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. 
in this case, I would argue that Jonah vowed to God that he would go to the Ninevites. He fears God and recognizes and recognizes that salvation is from the Lord. Jonah has graphically, he has lived this, and he knows that salvation is truly from the Lord. Beloved, I believe this is the most important truth from Jonah. Absolutely the most important truth. Salvation comes from God alone. That was Jonah's lesson. Jonah knew that God saves, not Jonah. Uh, He knew, Jonah came to realize fully that God is the author of salvation. He is the only true God to whom everyone needs to come. This is not just for Israel, but it's for all the nations and it's for you and I as well. Look back at your text in verse 10. Yahweh pronounces a command to the great fish. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And this section then ends where it started. Jonah 1.17, God had prepared, he had arranged for a great fish. Now in verse 10, he pronounces a command to that great fish. That whole prayer is a parenthetical section. The, the miraculous nature of this act of, of God commanding the fish, it should boggle, it does boggle the modern mind. It's funny to me, in our modern culture, we talk to our pets, right? We talk to them. We even train them through repetitive words and actions. You know, my daughter trained my dog how to shake, and none of us could do it, but she did. She stuck with it. She's got a stick to that some of us don't have. But now, I don't think you can train a cat, though. Maybe you can. I don't know. It's my anti-cat bias coming out. You know, I saw a meme the other day. It said, this morning I saw a neighbor talking to her cat, It was obvious that she thought her cat understood her. I came to my house, I told my dog, we laughed a lot. (laughs) Now, we may be able to train a cat or a dog, but I'm pretty sure we can't train a fish to obey at least voice commands. Although, as I think back, Flipper, you remember Flipper, the the dolphin? He was pretty cool, right? I mean, they trained him how to do stuff, so I guess you can. But, no, in all seriousness... I think we all recognize the the miraculous nature of God commanding a fish in this way. Ultimately, this is the same God who spoke who spoke creation into existence. I, I think the re, the reason we struggle, the modern mind struggles with this, is because they don't understand who God is, and they they deny Him, and in their unrighteousness, they deny Him. They suppress the truth. They don't recognize that God created the world. Everything that we see, the mountains, the dry lands, the, the, everything. He created you and I. So why couldn't he speak to a, to a fish and that fish obey? We shouldn't struggle with God commanding a fish to carry Jonah to the dry land and rudely depositing him there. I mean, we shouldn't. This brings us to Act 3, which we'll see next time. As we watch in Act 3, what we're going to see is 
that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Look at verse 1, the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Now, as we watch this drama unfold, we should be struck by one fact. And if you don't get anything else today, I want you to get this. Jonah and Israel are not center stage in this play. In the words of one commentator, in these verses are found the education of the pouting prophet, the affirmation of God's sovereignty. It is God who is the most important character. He is the one who affects salvation. He is the one who enables deliverance. Neither Jonah nor the fish had control. It was God and God alone, end quote. You see, if we get too caught up in the character of Jonah, or even in the story itself, I mean, this great fish, right? And Jonah going to the city of of Nineveh. If we get too caught up into that story, we miss the amazing God who is orchestrating every scene. You see, Yahweh is the God who called Jonah to go to Nineveh. He's the God who created the supernatural storm. I'm arguing it's a supernatural storm. It's a storm that they had never seen before. I'm, I'm arguing that it is God who compelled the captain to wake Jonah. It is God who caused the lot to fall on Jonah. It is God who constrained the sailors to cast Jonah into the sea and to worship him. It is God who calmed the sea. It is God who commanded the great fish. And it is God who chose to save Jonah. It's the same God who's going to choose to save the Ninevites. And he's also the God who chooses to save the lost. The great truth of Jonah is that Yahweh is the God of salvation. Last time I clearly, or I showed you that the God who calmed the seas in Jonah 1 is the same God who calmed the sea in Matthew 8, 27. And when he did so, the men in the boat said, amazed, what kind of of a man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. He's the author of salvation. In John 14, 6, Jesus proclaimed that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, if you know Christ, I hope you will come to see His majesty in an even greater way through the account of Jonah. And if you don't, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus As your Lord and Savior, He bids you to come. He bids you to come to the cross. The one who who, who stilled the sea and caused those pagan sailors to worship Him, the one who saved Jonah from certain death, and, and we will see, will show compassion on the Ninevites. He wants to show compassion on you. He went to the cross to die for for our sins. He alone, He is the way, the truth, and the life. Come to Him where you will find rest. If the Holy Spirit, as we've been preaching today, if the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart as we've been preaching this sermon, please let me know. Come and talk to me. I'd love to hear what's on your heart.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. What a miraculous story. No, I'm not talking about you arranging for a fish. I'm not talking about you causing the fish to, to vomit Jonah and onto the shore. I'm not even talking about you physically saving Jonah at the bottom of the ocean. What an amazing truth that you alone save. What an amazing truth that you alone show compassion. Father, as we depart from this place, I pray if there's anyone here who wants to know you, who don't know you, who wants to know you, or that they would cry out to you even now. I pray that they wouldn't let this day go by. Lord, that they would understand the truth that John Newton understood on that, in, on that ship as he was tied to keep from even being washed overboard. What if these things should be true? What if these things should be true? I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.